morning. Welcome. That was awesome today. I mean, guys in the band are amazing, but it kind of feels like girl day. And that was amazing. Thank you, Lamar. Welcome home. We're always glad when you travel and serve the world, and we are always glad when you come back to us. Um, we're glad to have you. Thanks for coming out on a very dreary day. If you were to ask me, this is the exact day to skip church. Like, you know what I mean? I, I'm glad that you didn't, but it's so gray. Like, it begs for an 80s movie. Anyway, you came. Yeah, you. Jesus is pleased. Okay. So, we are starting off 2017 going one by one through the key values that ANC was founded on in 2008, just sort of a revisiting of what makes us tick, um, what we've been commissioned to, what we believe is the call, um, specifically on this church, but actually globally on God's whole church. Um, and so I'm, I'm thrilled to, to pick up um, the baton and run this, this particular leg of the race. This is the key value that we're pressing into this morning. We see a church that cares passionately for the oppressed, the abandoned, the helpless, and those in spiritual, relational, and physical need. We believe it is the church's responsibility to lead this movement in both our community and throughout the world. Let me tell you a little story about Jen and Brandon, Hatmaker. Um, 10 years ago, going back to 20 years ago. So we have been in full-time church ministry since the day we graduated from college. Um, and so our entire adult lives have had Brandon on, in a full-time position on staff, and I'm also working in full-time ministry, whatever it is that I do. Um, and so about 10 years ago, we were just kind of happy-go-lucky um, church staff people. Um, we, we were in full-time work. Everything's all systems seemed to be firing, had a lot of success, whatever that means, um, in a church culture, which is super weird. Um, and to be honest with you, I think we were kind of living like a churched up version of the American dream. You know what I mean? We had enough Jesus sprinkled in there to make it seem um, legitimate, but if I was telling you the truth, it would be that during that season, I 100% was sort of at the center of my own God story, right? My family, um, my happiness, my dreams, my security. Um, what I, I, was, I, was the, I was the sun, and everything else was sort of orbiting around that, um, and that was kind of how we were operating in our family. Now, you would have probably concluded something differently to look in on us because of the full-timeness of it all. All right, you would have probably thought, well, these this people are squared away. They are in full-time church work. This girl's writing books, teaching Bible studies. There's some real Jesus-y stuff going on here. That's exactly what it would have, would have looked like to you. Um, but I'll tell you that that would have only been partially true. Um, the truth is, for a really long time in my adult life, and in our adult life as a couple, we we kind of gave God the parts that we wanted to. Do you know what I mean? The parts that were safe, um, the parts that were, frankly, easy. Um, and outside of those pieces, um, which 
coincidentally had an upside because they were all the pieces you could see. So yeah, yes. Now we looked awesome to you. Um, outside of that, we were just super comfortable. We had, there was very little cost um, to our faith, very little cost. I mean, I could point to very precious little um, where we were truly just broken and poured out for other people. Um, Brandon has said for years that sort of during that season, we specifically used the Bible to defend our lives, not to define it. And there's a difference, a real key difference. And so um, I know that seems ridiculous that I could um, not only study this word, but teach it, write whole entire books about it, lead it, and still find the gumption to ignore most of it, right? It's a complicated skill set, but I managed it. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you how, how that worked for us as, as it's the edges just started prickling. And some of that comfort began disrupting, not because I wanted it to, um, but God will have his way with you. I'm just telling you, if you don't know that, live longer, okay? He'll get you. He'll get you. This is not a democracy, okay? And so this, this aggravating stuff start, kept popping up in Scripture about the poor, about orphans, about widows, um, about the hungry, about the prisoner, right? And it was maddening and because uh, we didn't, uh, zero of our life was oriented around those people, zero. I didn't even know any poor people. I didn't, even, I didn't even know where to find anybody. And so let me tell you how I routed around that. Um, I, as a Bible teacher, I just made this a semantics game. Like, in other words, I would read pretty direct instruction on caring for um, the orphan, for example. And what I would say was, I do care for the orphan. I care for the spiritually orphaned, right? Like that, I introduce them to their heavenly father. And so when, when the Bible would say, um, feed people who are hungry, easy. I feed them. I feed them the bread of life. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you could just turn it all on its head, just like that. And so with just to play on words, I was able to find myself... Um, not only unconvicted by Scripture, but actually obedient to it all. So um, that was the way that I, was, I operated for a handful of years. And then God just started messing with us. He just started messing with the both of us. And it, it started back in the Word, the Word that I had circumvented for a whole lot of years. And I'm going to share with you um, a passage this morning that ultimately um, bore a heavy and a real and a lasting weight, um, not just in our hearts and souls, but in our lives. Um, and you've certainly heard it, and I'm going to read it out loud to you. It's in Matthew 25. Um, what, what I would consider, in my opinion, just one of the flagship sections of the instruction Jesus ever gave us. It's just so weighty and deep and important. I'm going to read to you starting in verse 31. He's telling stories because everyone's trying to figure out what this kingdom looks like. You know, Jesus, it's easy for us now to talk about because we have the benefit of hindsight. But at the time, all these ideas that he's introducing were just so crazy. They were just so bananas. And they were so opposite of the way they had done religion up until this point. So they keep saying, what does this mean? And 
what's the most important rule? You know, that's always the question they ask. And, and how do we follow this the best? And so Jesus is telling this series of stories. You know, Jesus, he just cracks me up because he could just never give a straight answer. You know what I mean? They're like, what does it exactly mean to follow you? And he's like, there were 10 lamps. You know, like, it's just never direct. I know. They were like, just speak plain, man. Okay? So he's going through this series of stories trying to explain what matters to him. Trying to explain, this is what my people will look like. Trying to explain, these are the rules of my kingdom. And this is one of them in a series of stories, starting in verse 31. The Son of Man comes in all his glory, and the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he goes on and explains the flip side. Because you didn't feed me and you didn't clothe me and you did not welcome me in. So I never knew you. So I started reading that passage differently. And I mean really differently. In fact, um, just this week when I was studying, I pulled out, I have like 70 Bibles. It's a weird hobby. Um, And I pulled out one of my old Bibles because my dad raised me right, so I have a Ryrie Study Bible, New American Standard, of course, which was the Bible of my 20s. It is marked all to shreds. And I pulled that Bible out to see what my 20-year-old self thought of this passage. Like, well, I wonder what I wrote about this when I read this in my 20s. And I opened it up, and on verse 40, I only had one note on the entire passage. One note. And this was the note that I said in my 20s. I was made to last forever. That was my takeaway from this passage. All right. Bless my heart. Okay. So when I say I started reading this differently, I'm dead serious. Okay? Like, I really began to say, God, give me eyes to see what you actually meant. So I start reading this passage, which is, it's so physical, right? It's just, it's a flesh and blood. It's hunger. It's thirst. It's loneliness. It's so visceral. And, and God said, Jen, I need to teach you something. Not just in this passage, but roughly the, the 2,000 plus times I mentioned it in my word elsewhere, these are not metaphors. This is not a metaphorical speech. When I told you that people are hungry, what I meant is they're hungry for food in their mouths. That's what I meant. When I said they're thirsty, it's because they need actual water, okay? That, these, are, these are real people, real needs, and I have sent you in a real capacity 
to meet them. And I will just tell you that as we started studying this together, we were all sorts of whacked out. I mean, we were so messed up. I can't explain to you the sort of spiritual upheaval this meant for us at the time. I mean, you just cannot imagine how different our lives were then, 10 years ago, than they are now. So we just thought, of course, what you have to ask next is, what does this mean for us? Right? If God is, if Jesus is serious about this, I'm pretty sure he is. What does this mean for us? We don't even know any poor people. We don't even I don't know a single person in a single category listed in Matthew 25. So I have absolutely no idea what to do. So it's January. I haven't told this story in years, just years and years and years. So I, I hope I don't leave out an important part. But in January of 2007, right, so exactly 10 years ago, um, I, we were at church, the, our, our, the church that we were serving at, and just a regular Sunday morning, and we were singing a worship song. And it, you might have remembered it from 10 years ago. It has a lyric in it that says, my heart is dry, but still I'm singing. And just like that, like instantly, I felt spiritually diagnosed. I was sitting in church and thought, my heart is dry. Like, I am hungry. I am hungry for something I don't even know. I, I'm missing something I don't even yet have my hands around. I, I'm not even sure what it is. But whatever this brand of Christianity is that I have created and bought into, it's left me malnourished. Somehow, it is not growing me up. It is, it's, something is missing. And so I was driving home that day um, from church, and let me be tr- fair. I mean, this was not like a holy moment, so don't get that idea in your head. I mean, at the time, we had the three kids, and they were in the back of the car. They're fighting and squawking, and I'm saying something awful like, you guys better quit fighting. I'm going to give all your, your presents away to poor kids. You know, it's just not a holy moment, okay? So, but I'm in the car. I'm coming down Highway 71. And I remember I said a one-line prayer. I don't even know where it came from. I had no notion of it before it came out of my mouth. Um, the thing is, I just didn't know what else to do. Uh, we were maxed out in ministry. So it wasn't like I could add. I couldn't do a single more thing. We had 10 times too much on our plate already. So I knew I couldn't add more church. I could not add more Christian-y anything. So I didn't know what to do. Like if none of this stuff is, is, is nurturing me and growing me up, I, have, I am at my wit's end. So I just prayed, God, I'm going to need you to raise up in me a holy passion. That's all I said. It was one line, and then it was over, and I was back into my life. And I'll tell you, I don't recommend that prayer. Okay, I'm so serious. Like, do not say that out of your mouth, okay, unless you are prepared for God to just wreck your life out. So I, I'll tell you that just that very week, a tiny little spark caught. It was so small, I could barely even detect it at the beginning. I had no precedence for it, so I didn't know what it was going to look like. I didn't know what it was going to feel like. But God began an interruption in our lives that very week, and it began with the poor. It began with the marginalized. And so we spent about four months, Brandon and I, uh, basically falling apart, um, just thrashing around all the spiritual buckets that we had spent 15 years filling were just dumped, dumped, dumped. Everything was messed up. Um, everything felt shaky. Everything felt confusing. So we spent four months just praying, God, what, what, is, what do we do? Like, what do we do? Is, 
Is this something for here? Is this something for later? Is this what? We had no idea what to do here. And it, we got to, it was Easter. So this had been four months, started in January, now it's April. And so at our, in our church, we had, I don't know, just something short of like 700 services for Easter. And I mean, it was just so much going on, man. So much work. If you've ever been in church work, you know, it's just so much. And so we had all of our Easter services. And um, in that season, we had been reading a, a little book. Just this, it looks so innocent when you look at the cover. It's not, man. It was called The Irresistible Revolution. Some of you have read it. Um, it was uh, by a now a friend of ours named Shane Claiborne. And so this little tiny book, my friend put it in my hands. Maybe this is something about your tension. Um, and so he had just it asked all these questions that we had never answered, much less even asked. Um, all these questions about what it meant to serve on the margins, what it meant to engage the world's physical needs, not just the world's spiritual needs under a steeple, right? And so um, I didn't even know this. He didn't even tell me, but Brandon apparently had sent this author, Shane, an email, and it was sketch too. Like, he didn't even really have a real email. It went through somebody's cousin, and uh, you know, like, can you get this? Somehow that email landed in Shane Claiborne's inbox, and the week of Easter, um, Brandon phone rings, and it's Shane Claiborne. And he says, Brandon, this is Shane, and he's real country. I mean, it's like he wears all this weird, like his dreadlocks, and he wears weird burlap clothes, but he is like country fried chicken. So it's real weird when you meet him. Um, (laughs) This does not match. But so he calls Brandon, and because Brandon had on his email just had a signature that included his phone number. It was a different time when you still did that. Um, So he called him and said, listen, I'm going to be in Austin on Easter. I'm preaching at a little church downtown. And why don't you and your wife come down for the service and let's go have dinner afterwards. Let's talk about what this looks like in your context. Um, Which was just, I still can't believe it. Can't believe that happened. So, So that night we had all of our services. We changed our clothes. We went downtown to this tiny little church. Some of you might know it. It's called Vox Vene. It's still here. Um, and at the time, they were meeting in a rented space on, at, on campus. And I'm talking this place was, well, it's not unlike where we're at right now. So, like, think impressive and fancy, and now think the opposite. That was the thing. And it was small, really small. I mean, maybe 150 people, incredibly stripped down, like um, coming out of such a programmed uh, spiritual space. This was the opposite. There was, it was very, very organic, very, um, just very, very human. And the service was just, it was so tender and truthful and simple. That, That alone met a need in my heart I did not even know I had. I was so drawn to it. And so Shane's talking, and he's a real radical guy, if you don't know him. Um, He and his pals live in the inner city in Philadelphia in the worst neighborhood ever. And they've just transformed it from the inside out. And he's telling his story, and we're listening, and um, we're getting near the end of the service. And he says, I was just in San Antonio this morning, he tells us. And he said, "I I had Easter with a really large homeless community there that meets together as a church. And um, I asked their, sort of their spokesman, what do you need? 
Like, what do you need right now? And he said, well, we need, we need good shoes. You know, he said, most of us are on our feet. We're walking all day long every day. And that the shoes that we wear are everybody else's cast-offs. They're the shoes that you wore out and gave to Goodwill. And he says, we have back problems, we have leg problems, and it's just what we need. And so Shane's telling us this, and he said, so here's what we're going to do. We're about to have communion. And in this case, it was the sort of communion where you come forward and take it at the front of the church. And he said, just do not do this if it does not have spiritual meaning to you, because it'll be, it will literally be meaningless. But if you, if you feel it, like if the Holy Spirit gives you a nudge for it, when you come down to take communion, leave your, leave your shoes and leave your socks. We're going to wash all those and we're going to drive them down tomorrow. So let me just tell you a couple of important things. Number one, for those of you who live here, I don't know if you remember it. This was Easter of 2007. There's no reason that you should remember it. But what I will remind you is the craziest, most bonkers, cold ice storm moved in that day. Um, We, in fact, had an outdoor service planned and had to scramble and put it all inside, and it was freezing. I mean, it was like 15 degrees. So, you know, for us, that's like a frozen tundra. And so it was freezing. So as a result of that, everybody in there, y'all know what we would normally be wearing in August, right? Or April. Flip-flops. But because of that day, every single one of us had on substantial shoes. Um, And so there was... Second thing is, I'm sitting next to Brandon, and... I look at him, and he looks at me, and we kind of look down, and I was like, no, (laughs) no, we were both wearing the brand new cowboy boots that we had just bought each other for Christmas, and I am telling you right now, by a mile, we had never spent that much on a pair of shoes. Um, In fact, ironically, I used to... For those four months that I had them, I, I kept them in the box in my closet, and I would always joke and I say, "I need to keep these in the box where rust, for rust and moth cannot destroy." So God was like, "That's too biblically ironic. I'm going to take those from you. Yeah, you're going to give those up. Yeah, I can't. That's not that funny." Um, so, so I start like my face. If you could see my face, probably looks normal at the time, but I start this internal like argument with God sitting there in that little church, and I was like you know what, God? They're not practical. Like, they're, they're, not, they're slippery on the bottom, and they're no traction, and honestly, God, they're not even that comfortable. Like, I, I think it would be mean to give them to a homeless person. Um, and so I'm having this, this tug of war <laughs> right in my head, and just clear, clear. You know this time when God's just clear with you? Just clear. Like, Jen, Go give up those boots. I, it's not about your boots. Like, I, I need to teach you something. So I was like, <laughs> so I took them off, and I don't even care. I, like, raised them up for, like, a farewell <laughs> kiss. I don't care. They were pretty. And Brandon did, too. And we walk them down, and we leave them at the front of the church, and um, so I'll tell you that for sure there was a really beautiful visual that I'll never forget, of course, of having this communion table to commune with Christ flanked on either side as far as you can see by shoes, right, that people had willingly given for the poor. But my, my teaching moment, my, my key teaching moment came after, at the end. So the church is over, and I'm looking around, and I'm, I'm looking at all these just 
precious, simple, smiling Christian people hugging each other. They had just, we had just worshiped together so simply and so sincerely. And I start to watch them walk out into the freezing, icy, cold night, barefoot, all of them. And in my heart, I'm telling you, it could have been audible. I heard God say to me, Jen, this is what I want my church to look like. Right? I want you to rip your shoes off your rich feet every chance you can to give them to someone who needs them more. I want solidarity with the poor. I want real, real faith community rallied with each other and around mission in this city. And so I want you and Brandon to walk out of here and go figure out what it means to be a barefoot church. And I'll tell you that it was so powerful and profound. We could not even speak of it for a couple of days. I, we just couldn't even talk about it. And Brandon has his, an, a whole other side of the story that's so beautiful and fills it out even, even in, a more richer, in a more rich way. But, so that was, in, that, was in, that was in April. And we started realizing that what God had given us that night, that cold night, unbeknownst to us, was a vision for a new church. Oh, we didn't want that. I never wanted to be a church planter. I didn't want to be a pastor's wife, all right? So, like, I'm over right now. Um, so it wasn't like we were looking for that. Um, but God said, this, this is for you to do. I have, you are going to start a church, and it is going to be barefoot for the sake of the city and for the sake of this kingdom. And so we stepped down from our post in August, four months later, and ANC started exactly a year later on Easter 2008. And in the spirit of the Barefoot Church, we didn't start with a service. We started with a food drive. Um, in the beginning, there's a handful of you here that were with us from the very beginning. Uh, we started this church with almost a singular passion uh, for the poor and for the marginalized. In fact, our very first purchase that we ever made with church dollars was a grill that we could take downtown and serve burgers to the homeless. That was our, the first thing ANC ever bought with a single penny. Um, I, I've, I, love being, I love being almost 10 years old now um, and what God has done in us and through us. And a lot of people in this church, um, faithful and good people, have helped have helped round out our church in the ensuing nine years so that they're like, hey, knock, knock, we need some soul care up in here too. We're like, oh, yeah, 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 okay, also that. So, you know, we've broadened the palette since we have started. Um, but I'll tell you that this, this piece, this serving God exactly, which is what Jesus told us, this is unto him. It is unto him when we serve his brothers and sisters. We have learned so much about God and about Jesus and about his kingdom and about his ways and what it means to be faithful in this life. We have learned all of that by leaning into the margins. And I'll tell you what I know for sure. I know that not only is justice near and dear um, to God as his 
Scripture tells us over, and it's the most repeated theme. But all of history suggests also um, that communities that care well for their poor and for their hurting, they thrive. And the opposite is true also. If you can look back historically, when a culture rejects and or exploits the poor, you see absolutely every time societal breakdown and lack of human flourishing. You see abuse of power. You see women not respected and also marginalized. They all go hand in hand. And so there is something deeply, deeply fulfilling and nourishing and healing about caring for vulnerable people. It's real. This is a rock-solid biblical truth. So what happens is not just our faith community, but our individual lives and our whole culture experiences resurrection. It's what happens. What we discovered is that as we press into the margins, and what a hot mess. Oh, y'all, we didn't know anything. Oh, my gosh, we were so dumb and weird. I can't even tell you. Like, when we, when we first started um, serving the homeless, which is just where God started us, and we have since, of course, expanded in 10 dozen ways, but we didn't even know how to talk to them. I remember thinking, how do you talk to a homeless person? As it turned out, turns out it's just like a person. So <laughs> it's a free tip, okay? Like a human. All right. It's easier than I thought. So, but we started, however messily, right? Just however awkwardly, uh, with just a hand, just nothing more than a desire to serve Jesus well. That's it. Um, And what happened is it changed our lives. Absolutely changed our lives. We didn't just get to partner with God in bringing healing to people that are hurting. It healed us. It healed us. I have never in my life, and I am, I am a womb-to-tomb Christian, okay? I th- I've told you guys before, I went to church three times a week as a fetus, okay? Like, I am, I was raised, raised by the church, and I was raised in discipleship, and I am so grateful for that foundation. I mean, I can't even imagine my life without it. But in my whole life, in 42 years, nothing has discipled me and transformed me more than serving the poor. Um, as it, at the end of the day, when I spent the majority of my spiritual life inward on my own self, how can I, how can I make this about me? Like the same girl who read Matthew 25 and said, I was made to last forever, right? That ends up being an empty faith. Feels good at first because you can find a way to make everything about you, right? You can find a way to center yourself and make all the pieces fit your life. It's possible. It's possible. It's very possible to do it with God's word. When you push that to the side and you end up serving like Jesus told us to over and over and over again, it'll change your life. It'll change your marriage. It will change your family. It will change your children. It will change your church. And ultimately, it will change your city and the world. It will. God's smart. He knew exactly what he was doing. Two birds, one stone, right? He knew exactly what he was doing. It's not just the right thing. It's the best thing. And I would argue this morning that, it, that serving like this, 
selflessly and sacrificially is the closest way that we can ever resemble Jesus. I just feel it so deeply. I used to believe that my faith um, was best measured by how much I knew and how rigorously I could defend, explain all this, how I could defend Jesus, God, Scripture. felt really proud about that, too. I really did. And I want you to hear me say this real quick, just in case. Um, I will go to the grave forever believing um, that biblical proficiency is incredibly important. Super important. It's a big deal. It matters. It matters that we know how to engage with the Holy Spirit in his word so that we know how to live. But here is my point. I think biblical knowledge is only useful to the degree that it helps us love God and love people better. Do you know what I'm saying? If all we ever do is study, 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 and the way that we love God and the way that we love people remains static, and the only thing growing is our spiritual pride, we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. Jesus said that. He said, listen, a lot of people come to these scriptures because they want to know me, but they don't come to me for life. It is possible to miss the forest for the trees. And so I know that a faith community values God's word when I see its love for God and people ever increasing. That is how I know God reigns in that place. That is how I know his word matters to these people because it is transforming their lives. It's exactly why we have it. And we don't have it to be smart. We don't have it to impress one another or people above our spiritual rank. We have it so that we'll change our hearts, change our minds, change our souls, bring us deeper in love with Jesus and deeper in love with his people. The end. That's it. That's our whole marching orders. And then we die. Okay? That's it. That's what we're here on this earth to do. This is how Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 13. I don't know how much more plain this can get. I sometimes like Paul because he's such a straight guy. Like he just goes right for the jugular. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, all, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Pretty plain. I want to tell you as we wrap it up here that ANC has demonstrated a credible witness for Jesus in caring for the vulnerable since day one. I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of this, this little ratchet church. I really am. And I want you to know that your faithfulness and your obedience in this has had far reaching and lasting effect. For whatever reason, God has taken this tiny little church and made it really visible to a watching world. And I cannot tell you how many people have heard your story and the way that you have engaged so beautifully and it has spun off hundreds of new churches, of new ministries, of adoptions, of faithful, faithful work in other cities and in other countries in our world. Um, I, don't, I don't know what to make of that, except that's just God's work. There's no other way to explain that. But I want to tell you that your loving service to your neighbors, 
and to the people in this city has absolutely 100% moved the needle forward in God's kingdom in our time. It has. And it is just probably, probably one of the greatest honors of our life to do this beside you, of our life. If, if nothing else ever comes to our plates for the rest of our days, this service to you and with you will have been enough and unto God. What a joy to serve him and to serve people with you. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it to me. Let's pray.